brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The Radical. Fundamental principles of freedom. Rational self-interest. And individual rights. This is the Yaron Brook Show. Hey, right, welcome everybody. Thanks for joining me on this uh, Sunday afternoon. I guess it's morning still for many of you. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're stuck at home. Might as well do more shows. Plus, I um, <clears throat> I owe you, right? Because I got a bunch of uh, super chat questions yesterday, and I didn't get to them because the show went on. For two hours, two hours, and some of, you know, some people wanted an extra hour. They, you know, there's still people who want a three-hour show. So we got to two-thirds of that. Jonathan Honing, uh, who's a big advocate of a three-hour show, bailed after like an hour, 45 minutes. So three hours is tough. It's tough to listen to, never mind to actually do a show. So today, basically, I'm going to go over the, the questions, Super Chat questions I got yesterday that I didn't get to. And then um, it's up to you. Uh, I will answer Super Chat questions that you guys ask. But um, the longer you wait to actually post the questions, the better as I go through these. Let's say I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 questions before I can uh, take Super Chat questions from uh, listeners today. So uh, we'll see how far we get and we'll see um, whether, you want, uh, whether you want to engage. Um, almost all the questions I have are on uh, coronavirus, the economic situation, and everything else. Uh, we'll do that. Of course, you're welcome to ask me questions about anything you like. All right, so let's just get started, jump right into it. What is the likelihood the economy reopens by Easter? Easter is April 12th. I think the, econo- the likelihood that the economy nationwide opens by Easter is zero. Zero. Um, if the shutdown goes on for months, will the U.S. become Venezuela? No, it, it will literally take years to become Venezuela. I mean, this is a rich country. Um, you know, even the shutdown is not shut down everything. Obviously, farmers are still farming. Uh, much of the supply chains are, are, are still around. There's a lot of accumulated wealth in this country. We could import food for, for a long time and not start starving like Venezuela. No, this would have to... This would have to go on for years for us to become like Venezuela, you you know. uh, um, So uh, now suddenly there are going to be people who are going to suffer and struggle uh, much more than others. But, uh, 
if it goes on for months, we'll be in a in a depression, but we won't be uh, dumpster diving for food. We won't be you know literally starving like like Venezuela. Just too much accumulated wealth in this country for that to happen. Um, at least if it's just a few months, if it's more than that. Now I don't think it'll be more than that because, and I don't think it'll be a few months because to a large extent, e- even a few months, I think I think the American people would rebel. I, I don't think. I don't think the, and I think too many people would would argue against this. And as I mentioned yesterday, even uh, Governor Cuomo has said said two days ago, three days ago, uh, that maybe it was a bad idea to shut down the entire economy, and maybe that was not the uh, ideal situation. So, um, you know, I think I think some uh, areas are going to. you know, think twice about shutting down completely, and then I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to open up at some point, but not not April 12th, certainly not the entire economy. By April 12th, California will only be going into the worst of it, and uh, in terms of hospital, ICU, and all of that, and they shut down early, and they'll only be going into the worst of it around April 12th, and so you got to assume two to three weeks after that, so we're probably looking at early May before California maybe opens up. Um, so, you know, who knows? Here in Puerto Rico, I'm hopeful that April 12th is the date that they start loosening up the, the constraints, loosening up the restrictions. For those of you joining late, I am answering questions, Super Chat questions from yesterday, and I will uh, answer su- your Super Chat questions today, So I am, uh, but, but only after I finish the Super Chat questions for yesterday. So we'll just take it in, uh, in order. Okay, are suicides and homelessness about to explode over the next few months? Are people recognizing the mental health destruction the shutdown is causing? I think people are, some people are recognizing it. I have seen some stories um, online about this. I mean, it's kind of sad that, that, that people can't handle being alone or being inside or, or, or being, you know, having to entertain, if you will, themselves. Uh, but the fact is that they can't. You know, it's, it, it, there are many issues of self-esteem out there. We do get a lot of our purpose and our meaning from our work. And if you shut that down, now we're stuck at home. A lot of people don't know what to do with themselves. And, uh, and you are going to see, I've already seen stories that the opioid epidemic is probably going to increase uh, under these conditions. And certainly uh, suicide, homelessness, and other mental health issues, um, just depression more broadly, is probably going to increase. So the people susceptible to this, before the crisis, are even more susceptible to it now. Uh, less, uh, less support networks, uh, less money, more worry about money, more worry about the disease, more worry about getting it, more worry about our children, more worry about our parents. I mean, I even see it. I, you know, I'm more anxious and stressed than I normally am just because you know, I read so much about it, and it's, it's, it's stressful. And then you know, and then I worry about markets or worry about work and I worry about finances and, you know, all of us, all of us. So the level of anxiety is definitely rising. And some people, uh, for them, anxiety, um, anxiety will, is easy to, you know, in a sense, transfer into uh, depression, uh, opioids, uh, and, and even, even homelessness. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we will, we will see how this plays out. But it's not going to play. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. And I agree. 
I expect to see deaths from um, opioids and other things uh, increase. Um, is it proper not to let in homeless people and drug addicts into ER during a crisis? Sure. I mean, I don't think they should be let in anyway unless they have insurance, unless they can pay. And, and if they are let in, they should be let in under, you know, whatever the hospitals have in terms of, um, uh, you know, charity. But, of course, in a free market, of course, today, uh, the law requires emergency rooms to treat anybody who shows up. So in the world in which we're in today, I'm not sure how doctors are going to be able to prioritize. I assume they're going to prioritize corona over drug addicts or ER, but, but I'm not, or, or, or homeless people, but, or, or people who just don't have insurance and who, who, um, who are not sick of corona. But I'm not, just not sure how all of that is going to get done in the, in the intensity of an ER room. So it'd be interesting to talk to an ER doctor and see how they're going to handle it. But, um, yeah, I mean, in a, in a proper world, in a rational world, there wouldn't be Medicaid. There wouldn't be other ways in which people can get, in a sense, free health care. They would either have insurance or they wouldn't get treated. Or if they got treated, they would be treated under whatever charity the hospital actually had. And, and that, would be, that would be the standard. Um, you know, and... and um, but you have to prioritize in the world today. I, unfortunately, I think a lot of sick people are going to be deprioritized relative to coronavirus. I think coronavirus is at the top of everybody's mind. So, you know, the quality of care that you get if you're having a heart attack, the quality of care that you got if you've got some if you've broken a leg or if you've got some other problem is going to be diminished because your doctor is going to be so overwhelmed with coronavirus, particularly, let's say, if you're in New York right now or some other places. Um, yeah, Derek says remind people about child abuse and spouse abuse. No question. I mean, um, if, if people are in a relationship where there's abuse going on, then during a lockdown, you can't escape. You're right there. You know, the abuser is not going to work and relieving you from at least that abuse for a few hours. Now, of course, you should leave such a home and you should get away from such a person. But uh, situation and context doesn't always make that easy. And there's no question that under, uh, under these circumstances, cases of abuse are only going to increase. So anything that, that is bad when people are huddled together, anxious, maybe depressed, uh, uncertain about the future, struggling about money, and suddenly you put them together under one roof 24-7, it's only going to exacerbate whatever relationship and other problems they already have uh, this is going to put them on, on steroids and make it much, much worse. Don Watkins said he was impressed by some of the deregulation the Trump administration has done during this crisis. Do you agree? Now, I hate, you know, I, I don't want to disagree with Don Watkins. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, I'm not that impressed, I have to say, um, because I, I strongly believe that the deregulation that they've done during this crisis would have been done by any administration. Uh, they would have been harangued not to. I mean, even leftist publications, like left-leaning publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, and others, Atlantic, uh, urged significant deregulation about the FDA, around the FDA, around regulation for testing and things like that. So I, I think other administrations, more competent, uh, more organized, more science-oriented administrations would actually deregulate it faster 
and maybe even deeper than this, this administration. I just think this administration, not that it is pro-regulation, I just think they're incompetent. And I think the people working for Trump are generally incompetent. And he doesn't listen to the most competent. So that's not the standard. Competency is not the standard. So um, I, I, I don't think they were on top of the ball. I don't think they did it early enough. I don't think they did it deep and wide enough. So unless I'm missing something, and I probably am because Don is, is a really, really smart guy who knows a lot. Uh, from what I see, I don't see where one would be impressed with the deregulation. Uh, but maybe I'm missing something. Uh, people who evade reality always evil. My mother-in-law evades reality and is phony, but I wouldn't call her evil, just unpleasant. No, you have to morally judge people. And, and if you don't want to use the word evil because you want to keep the word evil for people who do significant harm in the world out there, then, but you certainly should be calling it immoral. The essence of immorality is evasion. And, if, and immorality is not about what somebody does to you. It's not about what somebody does to others. That standard is an altruistic standard. The fundamental standard of immorality is what a person does to themselves. Most unhappy people are unhappy because they're immoral, because they've evaded, because they've not engaged their mind, because they, won't, they don't think, because they're not you know, engaged in living. They're not prioritizing their life. They're not prioritizing their happiness. And that is immoral. It's immoral not to prioritize your happiness. It's immoral not to use your mind in pursuit of your values and pursuit of your life. So unless they have chosen to die and then morality doesn't apply to them, then they are immoral, immoral for not being engaged with the world. Now, again, there's all kinds of levels of immorality, and it doesn't mean that somebody's immoral or somebody has acted immorally that you need to completely cut them off. And, 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 you know, it depends on how bad it is and what the damage they do to you. If they are damaging your life, then you need to cut them off completely. Um, but if they're not damaging to your life and it's mainly them and you do get some pleasure from being with them or whatever, then that's fine. But the moral judgment is important. Being able to say that was an immoral action because it involved dishonesty or it involved evasion or it involved not using your mind in pursuit of your happiness, but going by emotion. You, you've got to call it. It's, it's, it's part of what justice requires. And it's a reminder to you to do it, to engage your mind, to think, to, to pursue your own happiness. So don't shy away from calling people immoral. And if you want to keep the, uh, if you want to keep the label of, uh, of uh, evil for people who really harm others on scale, then fine. But certainly immoral is, is necessary to identify the immorality of something. Do you agree with AOC? Oh, my God. Of course not. Even if superficially, I might. All right, do you agree with AOC's speech yesterday that the $2 trillion stimulus package is unconscionable to corporations with no strings attached? No, I don't agree with her. It's unconscionable, period. It's unconscionable that we are bailing out businesses. Uh, you know, unless... Unless the government is the direct cause of the business's stress. And then why put strings attached? So what's unconscionable is that we put businesses in a position where they're struggling because of government, not because of, of 
the virus, not because of some, call it act of God, right, some uh, unpredictable occurrence, but because of government's pathetic response to it. Like a lot of restaurants, I think, are struggling because of government's response. Uh, to some extent, airlines are struggling because of government's response, because of the constraint on, on flying. But a lot of that would have happened anyway. So no, there's nothing common between me and AOC, nothing that we can really agree on if you understand. What she wants is to control corporations. And what she wants to do is to use the stimulus bill to control those corporations. Now, I say if you're going to fund corporations, there should be no strings attached. Because any string you attach is government control of business. Any string you attach is central planning. Any string you attach assumes that you know better how to run the business than they do. So maybe don't bail out corporations, but if you're going to bail out corporations, then just bail them out. Bail them out. Give them the money. Let them do what they want with it. The more strings attached, the more counterproductive the bailout is. So I am against strings attached. I am against everything else. I've already said I think AOC is smart. Doesn't mean she's right. Emmanuel Kant was a genius, and he was wrong through and through. And by the way, this idea of strings attached, Republicans support that, Trump supports that, AOC supports that, everybody supports that. They might disagree on which strings, on the level of the strings, but nobody, nobody believes that the government should bail these companies out without strings attached. So AOC is not an outlier here. Fifty years ago, would Americans have tolerated an economic shutdown over a virus? Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. I hope not. I don't know, but I, 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 I don't know why. No, I mean, Mark says stock buybacks should be prohibited. Why? Stock buybacks are much more a better use of the money than bad investments. 
why the stock buyouts occur? For the most part, stock buyouts occur because the company has a lot of cash and it doesn't have any good investments. So the best thing they can do with the cash, and literally the best thing they can do with the cash, is give it back to shareholders. If they had an investment better than giving it back, and by the way, the reason they don't pay dividends is because dividends are taxed at a higher rate than capital gains. So it's cheaper for shareholders to get the money back as a stock buyback than as a dividend. But basically, a stock buyback is like a dividend, just with lower taxes. And the reason you pay a dividend, there's no reason to pay a dividend other than the fact that you believe shareholders can use this money more effectively than you can. And if the bailout is so pathetic as to give you more money than you can actually use for the bailout to, to, to invest in something that produces a positive return for you, then it's better to give the money to shareholders. And this is why bailouts are so pathetic. And this is why government shouldn't dictate how it's used because they can't figure out the economics of it. They, there is a massive economic benefits. And I've done... I did academic research in this, so this is something I actually know something about. There's massive, and I've read the papers. I, I know the economics of shareholder buybacks. They make sense. Now, they don't make sense from an economic perspective. When interest rates held artificially low at zero, companies borrow money at that artificially low rate and then use that money to buy back stocks. Now, it makes sense for the company, and it makes sense for the shareholders, so what doesn't make sense is the government is holding interest rates so low. So that's a Fed problem. But companies do bail, do stock buybacks because it's the best long-term use for the capital. I think companies should do more stock buybacks. Does it really make sense for Apple to sit on, I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars of cash? It's just sitting in the bank. And the reason they're sitting on it is because they don't know what to do with it. They don't have any good investments. Now, you could imagine it makes sense for them to keep some of it just in case a good investment came about, but they keep way too much of it. So why not give it to, the, to people who could reinvest it in the economy, shareholders, through a stock buyback or through dividends? Again, stock buybacks are cheaper than dividends because dividends are taxed at a higher rate than capital gains. That's another perversion and distortion of the market through tax policy. So before you criticize corporate behavior, particularly if the criticism is based on Tucker Carlson, um, you know, you should really study the phenomena. And, and, and nobody in finance, no academic in finance, or very few academics in finance, believe stock buybacks are negative. And most of us in finance, most academics in finance, and most of the research in finance shows that stock buybacks are a positive because they reflect the fact that the company is maximizing shareholder wealth by returning capital to shareholders instead of wasting it on bad investments. It's companies that, that invest poorly that, that, are, that are particularly bad, not companies that return capital to shareholders to let them make investment choices. So 50 years ago, I hope Americans would not have tolerated this. I assume that's true because they had a better sense of life and Ayn Rand would be alive and she would, you know, she was a genius, so who knows what she would have said, but whatever would have said, she would have inspired a lot more people, and hopefully they wouldn't have, but, but who knows? They, they agree to the welfare state. They agree to all kinds of things that, that you would think they would have objected to, Medicare and Medicaid uh, are creatures of, the, of 50 years ago, welfare, the war on poverty is a creature 50 years ago, the war in Vietnam is a creature 50 years ago, so it's not like Americans were rights-respecting fighters for individual rights, 50 years ago, 
It's been bad for a long time. Market up or down if legislation were appealed. It's it down, down dramatically for two reasons. One is, you know, you're taking away the, the cookie jar. You're taking away a short-term massive influx of funds that, that, that companies can use, individuals can use, that would boost short-term profitability. And the long-term is so uncertain, it's very difficult in times of crisis to price in uh, the long term. So uh, as the crisis increases, as volatility increases, as the certainty increases, people become more and more short term. It's hard now to plan what I'm going to do in the fall, never mind a year from now, because I don't know how I'm going to survive the next three months. So my entire focus during a time of crisis becomes surviving, becomes short term, becomes next month, not long term. And, and that's rational, right? So, uh, Short term, it would be bad for markets. And second reason markets would be down is they basically come to the conclusion that the government has no clue what it's doing. It does that stimulus. It retracts the stimulus. What it's going to do next, it, it, it would just be the uncertainty of it, the insanity of it, would cause markets to go down uh, if, if the $2.2 trillion bill was repealed. Um, what are the right combination of factors that would trigger hyperinflation? Should the man come back and $6 trillion stimulus package will do it? Yes. So if the economy comes back quickly, if demand that is spending is not curtailed, if uh, business uh, demand for capital and, if, and banks' willingness to lend does not shrink dramatically, if, uh, if all of that happens, plus you get the $2 trillion stimulus, plus you get everything that the Fed is doing, then yeah, you'd get inflation. But that is very, very unlikely. First of all, most of the Fed's action are in response to lack of liquidity, which means in response to the unwillingness of banks and other financial institutions to lend money. So already a contraction of credit, and the Fed is filling in the gap, filling in the gap in ways that I think distortive and, and bad, um, but, but filling in the gap. And then... You know, there's no question demand is shrinking. I mean, just think of your demand for restaurants or, or, or think of the fact that you're not all the things you're not spending money on. And there's no question that banks are going to become more conservative in terms of issuing credit. Now, is the $2.2 trillion stimulus package plus 4 to $6 trillion of the Fed the right number? I don't know. But, you know, historically, the number's been um, too small to create inflation. The, the Bush plus Obama stimuluses were too small to create it. The Fed's action in 2008 were too small to create it. Indeed, what they created was the opposite. So it's, it's really a question of, you know, and I don't know how to predict that. First of all, I'm not an economist who delves into the numbers to that extent. I don't know what the numbers would show us. But, uh, but it's, so I don't know. I, just my suspicion at this point is what you get. And because the Fed is so suspicious of inflation and it knows how to deal with it, it just needs to contract all that money. It just needs to stop the QE. That my suspicion is the way in for credit contraction, slow economic growth, and, and suffering through inactivity and, and long-term malinvestment and, and bad economics, bad growth, high unemployment, sustained unemployment for a long time, 
much more likely that that is the, the outcome rather than um, inflation. Uh, inflation. But I could be wrong. I, you know, as I said yesterday, I, I, I could very well be wrong. Peter Schiff and others could be right. This this could be it. Um, it's it's very, all I'm saying is I think the certainty is misplaced because I don't think anybody really knows. Okay. Um, seems that the government is using this crisis to remake the economy into fascist utopia with industrial policy and UBI become permanent in the end. I, you know, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that is the thinking that's going on, oh, we want to take over the economy. I think that's what, that's, again, I, I, I don't think government officials are that sophisticated and that scheming. I don't think they're competent, even on the evil side. I think what's going on is, again, the only tools our government officials know how to use are tools that involve central planning, force, coercion, government intervention in the economy, and government manipulation of the economy. And they're using those because it's all they know. And then when the crisis is over, they'll keep some of them. So it won't be so much, we've got a plan. Oh, now we're going to take over the economy. Now we're going to do UBI. No, it's these are the things I know how to do. They do them. And then when, it, when crisis is over, they go, huh, well, maybe we should keep some of these for, for the good of the nation, for the public good. And, and, and it, you know, power is a good thing. But they won't keep them all because they're afraid a little bit of the voters. So it's this incrementalism that is sped up during crises. But it's still incrementalism. And I don't think, I think very few politicians, you know, Bernie Sanders, AOC, have a long-term vision about where they want this to go. But most people, like Trump and others, don't have a long-term vision. They just grab power and they can get it. And that's it. Don't you feel the carnage that happened in the Texas oil patch will all the uneconomic shell players will create havoc with local Texas banking system. I mean, certainly Texas banks have been crushed by what happened with oil prices. So a lot of Texas banks have gone down in value dramatically uh, since uh, the Saudis uh, lowered oil prices dramatically. I mean, there are a number of questions here. First, the Texas economy is far more diversified today than it was, let's say, in the 1980s and early 90s when a, a, a big chunk of the Texas economy was just just um, oil. Today, Texas banks and Texas economy and Texas employment is far more diversified outside of the oil industry. So that the oil collapse is only going to affect some banks and and it's only going to affect a portion of their lending and a portion of the business they do. Um, So that's point number one. Point number two is it really is a question how long the Saudis can keep this up. As, uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia is going to be running massive deficits because what people don't realize about Saudi Arabia is that Saudi Arabia is a welfare state, a gigantic, massive welfare state. Uh, Most of the money they make in oil, they write checks to their their citizens because their citizens don't have jobs. There's no productive work going on in the kingdom. There's just oil. There's nothing else. So the only way they can keep the peace, the only way they can keep their people subdued and you know, okay, is to write them big checks as the war family engages in, I don't know, uh, orgies in Monte Carlo or whatever, you know, and, and, and spends the money on yachts and airplanes and all this stuff, right, on palaces. In order to keep the people appeased, they have to write them big checks. 
at $20 a barrel or 21, 22, which is where it is right now, they don't make, they're still, they're very profitable, but they don't make enough to keep their people subdued. They're going to have to let oil prices go up. How far, I don't know. When exactly, I don't know. The other thing is, Russia is really hurting. Russia is competing with the Saudis and keeping oil prices down, and it's pumping out oil like crazy. But Russia's cost of production is so high that at $21, $22 a barrel, they're not making any money. And Russia doesn't have an economy without natural resources, without oil and natural gas. So how long can Russia sustain this? I don't think for very long. So my expectation is that oil prices are going to start coming up soon. Uh, exactly when, I have no idea. But I'd say within the next couple of months, I expect to see oil bouncing back. Um, I will add that this is actually, in a big picture, good for the global economy. Oil at 20 bucks is making it much easier for China and South Korea and other countries that are coming back online in terms of production to produce. Oil at these levels is making energy super cheap. And therefore, it's making economic recovery much easier and much cheaper in the parts of the world that are buying oil on the open market. In Asia, in Latin America, in, in, in uh, Europe, in other places. So when this crisis when the coronavirus crisis slows down or goes away and we start wanting to consume energy again, having really cheap oil prices is actually uh, worth it. It's a huge value, huge value to all of our lives. So while it's bad for frackers, it's really good for the rest of us. Will this recession be worse than 2008? In many ways, yes. Or it's likely to be, again, depending on how much of the economy is shut down and for how long, but it could very well be worse than 2008 and longer than 2008. 2008, technically the recession was short, but this, the technical recession could be much longer. Remember, a recession technically is two quarters of negative growth. And um, the, the recession in 2008 were actually just two quarters. The, the real pain of the 2008 recession was the almost zero, very, very low economic growth for a decade following the recession, really, for 12 years all the way till today, uh, that followed the recession. So it never bounced back the way you usually bounce back from recessions. I think this time it's going to be worse in terms of the bounce back. The bounce back will be a lot shallower, a lot more moderate than it has been. Then, then let's say, 2001 recession or... 1991 recession, 91, 92 recession, or the 83 recession, or 82, 83 recession, or any of these recessions where the market bounced back very quickly. Here, I think the, mar- the real pain is going to be the low economic growth, and this will be a longer recession than the 08 recession. Uh, I strawman the majority of anti-vaxxers because they aren't against science of vaccines. They're against the method of which vaccines are administered using mercury. If I strawman them, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know much about the anti-vaxxers. Uh, I don't know much about their arguments. And, and look, I, I, I'm not too happy the vaccines have mercury in them. Um, I, I'm generally pro-vaccines, even with the mercury, because I think they probably do more good than harm. But if you could administer vaccines without heavy metals, 
certainly that would be better. Mercury is suspected of, of doing real harm to, the, um, to our um, nervous system and uh, might be related with all kind of uh, uh, cognitive problems and, and other potential health problems. Uh, but again, it's, it's the science of that, the science of heavy metals' effect on our body is not very well understood. But at the same time, many of these vaccines are, are, are crucial. So it really is, I wish we had more science uh, in terms of the effect heavy metals have on us. The science we Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We have suggests that vaccines are definitely worth it. At least the science I know. If this is a large-scale opportunity, reallocate human capital. What are the barriers to doing this efficiently? How can the marketplace make this a success story? Well, it can't because the marketplace is not allowed to, to work. And the other problem is that right now you've got, I think, two things happening. You've got a recession um, that might have happened. You've got bubbles bursting that were going to burst even without a coronavirus. You've got malinvestment, misallocation of capital that happened over the last 12 years that is, that is, that is being reallocated um, and, and is going to be reallocated. And at the same time, and at the same time, you have uh, the coronavirus, which is unrelated to what the Fed and what the government has been doing for the last 10 years. So you've got these two effects. Very difficult to separate the two out. Very difficult to know. But the, the, the best way for the market to allocate resources is not to bail people out, particularly not to bail companies out. And uh, or, 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 or to bail out, make the bailout very focused on those industries that are being shut down because of the coronavirus, not those industries that might have increased capacity because of low interest rates, industries that might be technically bankrupt if not for low interest rates, industries that invested in a lot of garbage because of low interest rates instead of, by the way, doing share buybacks, which would be much better use of that cash. Um, I think, I mean, America is filled with zombie companies that have existed over the last few years because of low interest rates and because the market was mispricing risk because of the way the Fed was behaving. I, the best way the market could adjust to that would be to let those companies go bust, but that's exactly the opposite of what's going to happen. That is, the Fed is committed to bailing those companies out. The Fed is committed to providing liquidity so those companies don't go bust. So if anything, I think we're doubling up on the malinvestment, on the misallocation of capital, doubling up 
on zombie companies because we're not letting the market work. And partially it's because of the confusion around coronavirus. If this was just a regular recession, my answer would be easy. Don't bail anybody out. The Fed should not do any. It should do very little. But given coronavirus, that's not, that's not an option, unfortunately, in the world in which we live. Tucker Carlson says he thinks Mario Cuomo will be the Democratic nominee. Election betting odds sites have him as a 5% probability ahead of Bernie Sanders. Um, I mean, for all we know, Joe Biden could drop dead tomorrow. Uh, he's, he's, he's old. Um, I mean, when it comes to politics, the kind of who's going to be the nominee, how, how political parties work, I mean, I'm sure Tucker Carlson knows more about this stuff than I do. I don't say that about anything else, I don't think. I don't think Tucker Carlson, uh, I don't have much respect at all for Tucker Carlson about anything. But on stuff like this, he might know more than I do. Certainly the betting, I, I, you know, the, the, the election betting sites, you know, probably know something. And, and uh, if they put it at 5%, 5% is pretty low at this point. But uh, 5% maybe makes sense. Um, in the old days of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party choosing their nominees in smoke-filled rooms, I have no doubt that somebody like Como would be, uh, would be their nominee. But given that they are committed to, quote, democracy, and given that the, ground, the grassroots are committed to democracy, I don't see how they pull it off unless Biden has a heart attack or has some health reason where he, or if they go to Biden, and they basically twist his arm to withdraw his nomination. I guess all of that is possible. I, I just don't, I don't know, right? I don't know. Somebody's asking about this uh, mercury. Uh, what do you mean heavy metals? It's liquefied at room temperature. It's considered a class B poison. Whatever happened to cause and effect? I mean, I have high mercury in my, um, in my system. Uh, I know this because I've had it tested. I've had... Um, uh, hair tests and, and blood tests. Um, I have high mercury in my system, certainly higher than what the, what the uh, literature recommends. And a lot of it comes from eating a lot of fish. So if you eat a lot of fish, particularly big fish like tuna, uh, mackerel, and fish like that, you, you know, and I used to eat tons of sushi. And I had, I've had it for years. I used to have very high mercury and then it went down and but it's still, even when mine goes down to normal, my mercury level in my blood, in, in my body, is high. Um, I have mercury fillings, I guess. We all, I mean, if you're old enough, you have mercury fillings. Maybe that's the reason. Who knows? Um, I'm healthy. I'm fine. I, I don't think I have any cognitive issues, although maybe it's this memory thing where I don't remember names. But to some extent, I've always had that. Um, and, I, and I asked my doctor at some point, I said... You know, what about the Japanese? I mean, they eat a lot more sushi than I do, and they eat a lot of big fish, and they eat a lot of fish. How come they don't have a mercury problem? You know, what do they do about their mercury problem? And his response was, they don't test. Um, and Japanese live longer than any of us. They have the highest life expectancy in the world. So the science of how much mercury your body can tolerate, how much mercury you can be in your system, how much mercury... Now, we know that very, very high levels of mercury in pregnant women cause birth defects. But we don't know that much about what is an appropriate level of mercury in, um, you know, in, in your body. You know, 
somebody says they had their mercury fillings replaced. I mean, that's that removed. That's you know, that's a possibility. I have not, partially because when you remove them, you have to remove them through a spe- special procedure so none of the mercury leaks into your into your body. And my mercury levels, you know, it, I, I'm not too worried about it. I guess maybe I should be, and I'm sure some of the doctors out there will tell me I should be. But um, again, I look at the Japanese, and they live long, and they obviously have a lot of mercury because they're eating the kind of fish that causes mercury. And I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, but the, the scientist I've talked to and the medical expert I've consulted with say there is a range in which mercury probably does not harm you. It, it's better to be lower than higher. But even when I don't eat fish, my mercury level seems to be relatively high as compared to other people. And but I have no symptoms. I have none of the stuff that people consider symptoms like, um, like uh, uh, neurological issues. Somebody says cholesterol level are more important. Who knows? Now there's a lot of people who say cholesterol levels are not that important, uh, that there are a variety of, of inflammation markers that are much more important than cholesterol. And my cholesterol is relatively high, at least in the latest test I did, uh, which I just got the results of. Um, and, and my bad cholesterol is relatively high. So, you know. These things are difficult, and it's difficult to figure out what's, what's, what, 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 what is good science and what is bad science. What is good science and what is bad science. So um, the cholesterol is a mess, and uh, you have to really dig into not only if your LDL is high, what kind of LDL. There's, there's variety of there two different kinds. Of, I forget now. But of LDL, and you know, anyway. When will the FDA be abolished? Oh, my God, the FDA is one of the last agencies to be abolished. It's, it's a long time, and the FDA will be abolished when we win, when, when people are committed to markets, committed to self-interest, rejecting altruism, rejecting collectivism. You ask about 30 years, I'd say 50 to 100. Do you think there is any possibility of rebuilding a rights-respecting society in America? Can you construct a rough timeline for what you predict the USA looks like in the next 50 to 100 years? I think the timeline is 50 to 100 years before we can build that. I think, I think things are going to get much worse before they get better. I do think that in the next 30 years, we will become more authoritarian and flirt with dictatorship, whether we actually get it or not. I do think that the only philosophy that can help us avoid um, real authoritarianism and... Um, and, uh, you know, prolonged uh, dark ages is objectivism. So I think it, it, it really depends on the ability of objectivism to become a dominant philosophy in the culture. The dominant secular philosophy in the culture is, is a goal. Uh, John Allison once said should, should be our, that should be our goal, the dominant secular philosophy in the culture. I think that's going to take 50 years. Uh, I think it's, it, is, it is achievable. It can, in the meantime, I think we get worse as... The influence of objectivism increases. The country gets worse. At some point, we reach a tipping point where the influence of objectivism is such where things start getting better. Maybe that happens in 30 years. Maybe it happens in 50 years. But at some point in the next few decades, things start to get better. They start to get better slowly. The impact of objectivism is not obvious in the beginning. But as it gets better, the impact of objectivism grows and reaches a certain point where it becomes obvious and then the 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 uh, the improvement is dramatic and radical, and it could be that in order to get there, we have to become full out authoritarian, and in a sense, rally the American people around the founding fathers and the flag of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. That could be 
another revolution. That revolution could be inspired by objectivism. And as a consequence of a revolution like that, we could rewrite the Constitution and make it more objectivist-like and, and see a renaissance in America, a renaissance of the founding. But again, I think that takes 50 years. It takes, it takes generations. Now, we've already had 60 years since the publication of, 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 of Atlas Shrugged. So, but I think these things take, particularly when you're as radical as we are, when you're questioning Christianity, when you're rejecting religion, when you're upending altruism, when you're rejecting tribalism, collectivism, it takes a huge amount of time to change all that. And, and things will have to get a lot worse before they get better. Is it immoral for me to take an employment and food stamps given the context we're in? No, I don't think it's, un- it's immoral of you. Ayn Rand wrote uh, uh, an essay. Uh, I can't, it's, on, it's on the website. It's on the Ayn, Ayn Rand.org. Do, uh, uh, do Ayn Rand scholarship. Um, and, and you'll find an essay about scholarships. And, and, and look, uh, you're going to pay taxes. If, if you're a hardworking person, you're going to pay taxes. This money is your money brought back to you. And what options do you have? Jobs are being destroyed by government policy. The economy is being destroyed by government policy. You have no choice, but, you know. I'm, now, I wouldn't do that as a first resort. Try to look for work. Try to, I mean, for your own mental health, I think. Try to do whatever you can to sustain yourself. But if you can't, then absolutely uh, you should be willing and able to take um, unemployment insurance. I am doubtful that gold will be supplanting USD due to this crisis, but I do think it will break record high of 1896. You've expressed skepticism with gold price rise. Please elaborate. Again, it, it relates to whether I think this will manifest itself in a decline in the purchasing power of the dollar. I just don't see it in the short run. I have no doubt. I mean, gold could break 2,000, but could go up to 3,000. I don't know. But will it sustain those levels? It depends on whether we have price inflation or not. And I'm not convinced we will have it. Now, again, there is a probability that that happens. So I'm not going to argue that I know. I don't know. I'm I'm pleading uh, ignorance in a sense of uh, I I don't know what the exact probabilities are. In 2008, it was likely that gold was going to go to 3,000. And certainly people like Peter Schiff argued that it would. And it didn't. It went to 1896 and then went way back down to 1,200. And there's a probability that that'll happen again. There's also a probability that it doesn't, that it goes up, right? So my answer is, and it's my honest answer, is I don't know. And I, 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 don't, I, don't, give prediction, I, I don't give investment advice. But if you think that all of this will lead to inflation, then price inflation, then yes, then, this is, then, then gold will go up. All right. Let me, let me just say this. No more Super Chat questions because I'm um, – there's no way I'm going to cover all these questions. So uh, I, I'm going to have to postpone to tomorrow. If you want to ask a question, I'll answer tomorrow. That's fine. But um, just to answer all the questions I have in the queue is going to require us to go, uh, go not quite three hours but go well into the second hour, which I was hoping not to do. So uh, uh, thanks for everybody who asked the Super Chat question. And feel free to ask them, but just realize that some of them might be answered in a future show, not today. Do you see a future for New York City, for Wall Street in New York City? Do you think this crisis is, is the second 1975? For us, it would be so easy and practical for Wall Street to leave. 
No, I don't think Wall Street is leaving, partially because Wall Street doesn't need to have a physical presence anymore. Um, you know, Wall Street is still functioning. Uh, I am still investing. People are still, you know, exchanges are still open and they, they can remain open with very little human touch. So I don't think the whole activity of Wall Street right now is going to be shut down. Not like 9-11 where it was really shut down, partially because not everything was electronic like it is today and partially because some of the infrastructure was destroyed. This time, Wall Street can continue going. Um, I do worry about the recovery of Wall Street because you've got a crazy mayor by the name of de Blasio, who's a real uh, uh, Marxist, and, and, and uh, it's going to be difficult to recover. Um, remember that while Wall Street suffered, suffered from 1975 until 1981-82, it then boomed. It then boomed and got a second life and exploded in terms of productivity and job growth and everything else during the 1980s. So maybe there's something happens um, and, and the economy in, in New York struggles and, and uh, over the next few years. That wouldn't surprise me. I think the economy in the whole United States is going to struggle over the next few years. And maybe it hits New York worse because this virus has hit New York worse. And uh, government officials have hit this New York worse than other parts of the country. But I do think New York comes back. Uh, it just might take a while. And it might be 75, but just remember, 82 was a big recovery. Nikki Haley resigned as board member of Boeing to protest bailouts. She defends capitalism as mall. As a conservative, what do you think of her position? So, I mean, I've said I, I'm, a, I'm a Nikki Haley fan to the extent I can be a fan of anybody. I, I'm, I have a lot of respect for resigning from the board of Boeing. Her defense of capitalism is very weak. Her moral defense of capitalism is, is full of altruism and collectivism, and it's very weak, and it's a traditional bad, bad conservative defense of capitalism. But, it, you know, in the short run, it's better than nothing, and at least she's willing to use the word capitalism, and she's willing to stand by markets, and she got a lot of cred for me for, for resigning from the board of Boeing. I wish she was more critical of Trump, but, of course, I think she plans to run for president in four years and she wants those Trump voters and she she she's not going to be critical of Trump um, in order to do that but I wish I knew she was critical of Trump uh, in a deeper sense um, but look of all the Republicans out there who are likely to run for president or who have a good chance of winning I think Nikki Haley stands out and Nikki Haley would be my choice so you heard it here um I hope Trump doesn't run for president and the Republican Party in smoke-filled rooms nominate nominates uh, uh, Nikki Haley, and I would vote for her. I can't because I live in Puerto Rico, but if I could, I would vote for her. I'd actually endorse her. I'd ask you to vote for her. So, but it's not, not happening. I want to hear crazy hitchhiking stories from when you hitchhiked in the United States. Also, why were you court-martialed? <laughs> uh, all right. well, one of these days we'll have to do crazy hitchhiking stories um, of me hitchhiking through the United States, but we'll have to make it a unserious show and we'll have to just, 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 you know, maybe with a glass of wine, maybe all of you can get a glass of wine and we can just sit back and, and tell crazy stories um, because that's what it would be. I, I can tell you one, court, I mean, court marshalling, all the man is I was, I was put in front of a military court and um, it's kind of funny, but... Um, the reason I was sent, I, I was basically sent to court to be tried uh, was because I was making out with my wife 
uh, while we were in uniform on a bench in front of the senior officer's mess hall. So all these generals were passing by and we were making out on this bench. And we were warned several times in the past that, you know, it was, it was a violation of military regulations. We had to sit three feet apart and we suddenly couldn't be making out. And, uh, and, and one day this senior officer just, just had enough of us and he basically said, Iran, you know, here, here, you know, writing you up, and and he sent me, and he sent me to the courts. I go, my, you know, he didn't send my wife, uh, you know, and this is my girlfriend. She was my girlfriend, who then became my wife. Um, so, so uh, uh, you know, this is part of one of our many adventures while we were in the military together. And um, I go, <laughs> I go in front of the judge, and the judge looks at the citation. He says, "Oh, come on." I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try you for this. This is stupid. This is ridiculous. This to the credit of the military judge, and he says, "Oh no, this is terrible." And he puts it aside and he looks at me and he says, "Your hair is too long. I'm fining you fifty dollars for your hair being too long. Go get a haircut." And 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 that was it. <laughs> and, and, and that was it. And he, and he released me. So I went and had a haircut and wrote a, a fine, whatever the money was, fifty dollars, twenty dollars. I can't remember. And, um, and, and that is my court-martialing story of the military. But, you know, I have a lot of fun stories about fun and sad and depressing and all kinds of stories uh, from my military service, if uh, we can do that when we do the hitchhiking stories. I have a lot of stories, right? Uh, this was in the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, yes. This was when I was, at that point, I must have been, yeah, I was 21. So I was making out with my girlfriend who became my wife, I was 21. Um, just getting the timing right. All right, is the stimulus even more damaging than the first multi-month shutdown? <sighs> That's a hard one. I don't know. I mean, they're both so horrific and they're both so damaging. The thing about the shutdown is much of it would have happened voluntarily anyway. Um, but they're both both damaging. And... The stimulus is damaging in, in the long run. The shutdown is damaging in the short run. Probably, if you calculate all the effects over the long run, the stimulus is worse. Particularly if the shutdown lands up being relatively short. Will you do a show on Ayn Rand's essay, Egalitarianism and Inflation? Great suggestion. Yes, that, that I'm, I, I, I'm taking a note of that and I will do a show on that. Cash is king, but any risk holding large amount of dollars with all government Fed printing going on, any suggestion for people in New York City, should we flee? Well, probably not. You're probably safe in New York City if you take precautions. You've probably either gotten or not by this point. You're probably not going to get it. Just, just wash your hands. Uh, wear a mask when you go out. I think wearing a mask is helpful. Um, because it, 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 if only because you're less likely to touch your face and touch your mouth and touch your nose when you're wearing a mask. Just then you have to watch not to touch your eyes because the virus can come in through the membrane of your eyes. Um, so wear a mask, wear gloves, you know, wash your hands a lot, a lot, a lot when you're in New York, but you're probably safer staying in New York at this point than leaving. Um, Cash is king. I mean, I would hold cash right now. There's no price inflation right now. Prices are dropping, if anything, right now. Now, there might be inflation later on, but by the time we get to later on, maybe the crisis in New York will have subsided and you'll be able to think more calmly about what you want to do and how you want to deploy your cash. Uh, but 
I don't think we're going to get hyperinflation. I've said this before. I don't think that's the damage that this crisis is going to cause. I would not hesitate to be in cash right now, at least with a certain percentage of my income. Um, and, and actually, given the potential disruption to infrastructure and the potential disruption to the fact that we have to stay home and all this stuff, it's not a bad time to have some cash around. Just have it in a drawer somewhere, just in case, as, a, as, a, as an emergency stash. What does it mean that the Federal Reserve is not part of the Treasury Department? Is it? No, it's not part of the Treasury Department. It's an independent entity. It's a separate agency. It is still run by the government, uh, and you can see that by the fire. It's not a private institution. It's a government institution, but a government institution that's separate from the Treasury Department. Now, the Treasury Department coordinates a lot with the Federal Reserve and influences the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve influences the Treasury. Um, and by buying Treasury bonds, the, what, the, what the Federal Reserve basically does is it monetizes the debt. It basically is printing money so that this $2 trillion can be handed out to Americans. That's literally printing money. And the way that works is the Treasury issues bonds, the Fed buys those bonds, and by buying those bonds, it, it prints money and it distributes them to the people who held the bond, ultimately the Treasury, but it goes through some investment banks who make profit doing this. It's part of the corruption of the whole system. Um, so the Federal Reserve is separate from the Treasury Department, although, for example, the profits of the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve makes profits most years, don't go to so-called private investors. They go to the Treasury. And, and the, the Federal Reserve is ultimately the people at, at, at the board are appointed by the president. So the Federal Reserve is a political institution, just a political institution related to, affiliated with the Treasury, but not part of the Treasury. They're two independent entities that, in the end, are both report to the president, the Treasury directly, the Federal Reserve just implicitly, you know, not explicitly. They pretend to be independent, but they're not. And somebody says they finished Ron Paul's end the Fed. I don't trust Ron Paul, so I don't trust the information in the Fed. I don't trust his, I, I just don't trust him. And so I don't think the, the data information in the book is trustworthy. I haven't read the book, but just knowing Ron Paul, don't trust anything that he writes. Is human action worth a 900-page read? First, I'd skip the first 100 pages. So the next 800 pages, yes. And it's worth it if you're interested in economics. It's worth it if economics is important to you. I would definitely read Economics in One Lesson first. Human action is hard. It's dense. It's difficult to read. But if you're interested in economics, it's the best book ever written in economics. So in that sense, yes. Is a rash, in a rational government, is there any measure to prevent companies from using slave labor in other countries? No, not governmental measure, but I think consumers would do it. So I think consumers don't want to buy products that were made with slave labor. So I think in a good, um, healthy, rational government, I think the media would be healthier. And one of the things the media would expose was, look, your product X, I don't want to use any names of products, is made with slave labor. We should 
and then people would rise up and say we should boycott them, and then we would. So the way to get rid of slave labor in that context is not through government action. It's through voluntary individual action. With the right co-author, would you write a book on the benefits of privatizing schools using objectivism as basics? Yeah, with the right co-author, I'd participate in any book project. But the right co-author is a big leap. Teaching Johnny to think as a start, would it, be benefit, would it benefit from an expansion into economics? I mean, yeah, there's a lot. I don't think, yeah, Teaching Johnny Economics is a good book to somebody should write. Not me, but somebody should write. Um, but a book on privatizing schools would be phenomenal. Would be phenomenal. Hopefully somebody will do that one day. I also wanted to say that I really enjoyed the Matt Redley conversation. It was great to see you have a genuine smile during all of this darkness. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you should all watch that because it's inspiring. And, and uh, the stories and everything are just fascinating. And even though, and, and part of it is we don't talk a lot about co- coronavirus. And I think that makes the interview stronger because we actually focus on things that are universal and will survive this and are much more interesting than the coronavirus. If the government has to put infected people into quarantine, should the test be done by the government or at least subsidized? I, I don't have a problem with the government buying a gazillion tests and, and doing it, but also hospitals have an incentive to test, insurance companies have an incentive to test, so everybody should test, and the government might want to test for its own kind of law enforcement, quarantine enforcement reasons, but then the government is responsible anytime somebody tests positive to make sure that they're quarantined, to make sure they're secluded. So the government wouldn't be the only one buying the tests, but they would be one of the people buying the tests. If the government has to put infected people into quarantine, should the test be done? Oh, that's the same question. All right. Um, what is the most effective way for government to inform all of a fast-spreading pandemic? How about a shorter lockdown very early on? I think, I think information. I think letting people know. I think, I think publishing publishing and, and letting governors and, and other local officials know that this is, uh, this is an issue that everybody should plan for and, and maybe putting forward what the best scientists have to offer about this and letting local officials make decisions. I think a short lockdown is better than a long lockdown, but lockdowns generally are not very efficient because once the lockdown is over, people still interact with the virus. The virus... As Amesh Adulja keeps saying, the virus is not going to go suddenly away because we locked ourselves up. The virus is out there. And unless you can lock yourself up until everybody who gets the virus either dies or recovers, the virus is going to be with us. So the, the plan should be, how do we live with the virus until there's a vaccine or until we develop herd immunity? And what is the best strategy for living with the virus? And I doubt that the best strategy is lockup, even short early, because, again, I don't think short early works. I mean, what we've seen as the best strategy is the South Korean strategy, which is test, track, isolate. And the tracking involves some privacy issues. But my, my view is, in a time of an emergency like this, giving up your privacy rights, and it's not really giving them up, but, but, but not is a minor cost to pay when the alternative is giving up your entire freedom. And you could argue that if you are insisting on privacy, but you could be infecting other people, 
it is fine for the government to impose the lack of privacy on you, given that, that you are endangering people around you. There's a pro high probability you are endangering people around you. So I don't think it's a rights violation to track in the context of fighting a pandemic. Schools are all closed and going to online classes. This is an opportunity to replace the current system. Do you know of anyone who could take advantage of this? There are lots of companies and there are lots of people working on it. There are lots of ordinary universities converting to online only. There are lots of private universities that have been online for a long time who are now, I'm sure, expanding their operations. And there are lots of startups in Silicon Valley who are really pushing this forward. So I think you're right. It's an opportunity, and there are lots of startups and lots of companies trying to take advantage of it. Um, and uh, whether they can or they cannot, whether they're successful or not, we will see. But it is, there is a disruption of the educational uh, marketplace, and there are a lot of players jumping on it to try to, to try to basically take advantage of this disruption and offer alternative products. And it could be that the quality of education increases in the future because of that. What do you think the econ of The Economist magazine? Love your show and please continue what you're doing. The Economist magazine is a left-of-center magazine. It's, it's always interesting because it has stories and places in the world that I typically won't read about in any other publication. So it's a global publication in ways that no other newspaper really is. But it's definitely skewed towards Keynesianism. It's definitely skewed towards kind of a left-of-center economic agenda so uh it's not a magazine i would i would read to learn about economics or to learn what makes sense economics or the cost of economic policies because they're so skewed to the left um they're so skewed uh away from us so uh you know and and and, and i think they i think they'll probably skew more populist now that boris johnson is moved to the more populist direction and of course donald trump and the rest of Europe, so I think The Economist is a fo follows, so I think they'll become more populist, anti-trade, anti-globalization, anti-all that, whereas the, the proper response to the current crisis is to maximize trade, which means to minimize tariffs, open borders for goods and services and capital. That is the ideal response to what we're going through from an economic perspective. Um, all right, I think we're done. Uh, you know, I didn't want to go over an hour, We're an hour 10, which is not bad. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, all of you. Support me through the Super Chat. Thank you for those who support me through my website, youronbookshow.com slash support. Thank you for those of you who support me through Patreon or through Subscribestar and, again, through the Super Chat. So um, uh, I, I really, really appreciate it. And um, probably do a show tomorrow. We'll see. Uh, and so if you have ideas on what you want me to talk about, send me an email at yuron at yuronbrookshow.com, yuron at yuronbrookshow.com. And other than that, you know, have a, have a great rest of the weekend. I'm going out to, break, to, to, to drive a little bit. Um, we'll see how that goes. And uh, I will see you soon. I will see you soon. Bye, everybody. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.